Go ahead and have a seat. Let me uh, read you something. This is a little prayer journal thing that I write in. Uh, and I wrote this this morning. Um, confess I was a little bit anxious this morning heading into today and stuff. So uh, this was my prayer as I wrote this right over there about 8.15 this morning. God, would you grant me peace beyond measure? My heart and spirit are anxious, but I want to know your peace. Your might and power and promise support me. God, may the depth of my spirit know that in such a way that all of me follows and subjects itself to the will of peace. I'm going to read that again because that's kind of the heart of the prayer. Your might and your power and your promise support me. God, may the depth of my soul know that in such a way that all of me follows and subjects itself to the will of peace. I need to believe that you're in control. Let me, uh, let me pray that for us, and then I'll talk a little bit about it. God, I, I thank you this morning that you are in control, Father. I pray that you would bring each of us to a place where we fully believe that, God. And you want to pour grace and peace into us, Father. And, and Lord, I, I ask now that you would make us open and willing and empty vessels seeking to be filled with your grace and your peace, Father. And may you drive it deep into our souls, deep into the, the deepest portions of, of who we are, that we might, all of us, our will, our desires, our affections, all of us be subject to the peace that you've poured into us. And God, as I've experienced this morning, the results of that are just a beautiful, contented joy. And God, I pray for each of us as we interact with your word this morning, Father, that we would be overcome with your peace that results in a perfect and contented joy. It's in Christ's name. Amen. So all that's rattling in my brain this morning as I'm sitting there praying and, and praying for what's happening because I know what's coming. The conclusion of verse 2, which is where we'll, we'll be mostly this morning in First Peter, is, is all about may grace and peace be yours. And so I know that's where we're going to wind up ending this morning. May Peter's prayer to God for you and I, may grace and peace be yours. And so I'm wrestling with that, and, and I walked in those doors this morning filled with anxiety and, and a lack of peace. And, and I, don't, I don't know, I know a lot of you, but I don't know all of you, and, and I don't know all of you deeply like I know my own heart. So I don't know what you walked in here with this morning, what anxieties you have, or maybe what great peace you have. But Peter has written a prayer for us grace and peace be ours. And that's my prayer for us this morning. And, and I can tell you, some of you have already spoken this to this morning, I hand you a bulletin and I say, good morning, how you doing? And you say, hey, how you doing? And it's sort of what we do. 
but I've, I've spoken to several. I've, I couldn't be better. God has ministered peace to my heart this morning, and I pray that as we finish this morning that God will have ministered peace to each and every one of us, and we go and have a ridiculous day. Um, so if you want to open your Bible up to First Peter, that's where we're going to be this morning, but uh, I'm going to spend a little bit of time this morning setting this up because in order to be good students of Scripture, we have to do several things. When we read an entire book, and, and I, I want you to once a week to read all of First Peter, um, make it a, a checklist for yourself. Not a religious checklist, but a checklist for yourself. Did I read First Peter this week? Uh, and allow it to just begin to wash over you. But before we, we read the whole of a book, and this is a, a letter written by Peter, so we'll call it an epistle. Uh, before we read the whole of it, it does us good to know and understand who Peter was when he wrote this, who he was writing to, and what exactly it is he's trying to communicate to them. So to contextualize the book is what we want to do, to try to understand who he was writing to, who he was, and, and what he's trying to say to him. So let's, let's walk through that, because here in this book, it is, it's really beautiful. First, the audience that he's writing to is, ex- they are exiles. These are Jewish people, these are Gentile people, these are Christians scattered throughout uh, a region. Um, fire that, that map up there. Um, the, as you can, you can see, off to the, I guess, the northeast of this map, the stuff written in red, this is, that's the, the regions, the areas that he's writing this letter to. And probably what happened was, Peter writes this letter in multiple forms, about seven or eight, nine, ten copies, and he goes and takes them to the churches in these regions, Asia, Bithynia, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Pontus. We'll see that in verse 1, where he's, who he's writing this to. And these are the people that he's writing this to. And, and it's, it's exiles, not in a, a political sense, like a lot of times that happened in that region, like somebody would come and take over an area and kick everybody out, and they'd have to go be exiles and live in a different country. This is more a metaphorical exile that all of us can connect with. We were not created to live here. We are foreigners on this planet. Not foreigners like is in the country, but like we were designed and created to live in beautiful, heavenly harmony with God, unaffected by sin. That's what he's talking about when he calls them exiles. And so this is the audience that he's talking to. And so we can all relate to that because we all live on planet Earth. Right? Anybody here doesn't live on earth? No. So we all are here living here. The date, when this is written. And this is when, this is when it gets really good. This is really important. It's written in about 62 to 63 A.D. Scholars have, have placed it in 62 to 63 A.D. And here's the cool part. Nero, you guys have all heard about who Nero is. From 54 to 68, he was the Roman ruler. And all of the world, for the most part, is subject to Roman rule. So these exiles that he's writing to, their emperor is Nero, okay? And in 64 AD, Nero begins killing Christians. And I've used this platform to tell you before about how Nero killed Christians. For those of you who don't know, here's what happened. Christians would be jailed, and there would be these large, let's just use a telephone pole, not quite as high as a telephone pole, maybe 10 feet high, with a sharp point on the end. And Roman soldiers would carry these Christians up to this pole and impale them on the pole. Then Nero would pour gasoline on them. Then he would set them on fire. 
so that there would be light for his parties that he would have nightly. So the fate of the people that will read this book is that. But the beautiful part is, check this out. Nero begins killing Christians in that way in 64 AD. So what happens is God is providential enough, cool enough, absent of time enough to provide them with this beautiful way to endure suffering about six months to a year before they actually did it. Man, that ought to just make us smile and understand that whatever it is that you're walking through, whatever it is that you walked through, whatever it is that you're going to walk through, God already knows it and he's already prepared a way for you to endure it. So, so beautiful and life-giving and courage-giving and just think back in your life to something awful that happened to you. God prepared you for that before it actually happened. God is absent of time. Uh, This week, I went to a a baseball game on Tuesday night. And this was like, you guys know I do like insurance on, you know, there's a bivocation sort of thing. And this was the very first time I ever got like an insurance company sent me an email and said, we'd like to, to take you to the ball game and put you in a suite with nine or ten other agents. I'm like, wow, I'm like a real dude now. <laughs> and so I was really excited about it, right? Because one, you know, I felt like I'd arrived there. There's other guys that like get trips to like really cool like beaches and stuff and I'm going to a baseball game. Uh, but I felt like I've arrived. And more than that, it was like air conditioned and it was like a hundred degrees outside, right? And so I am sitting there watching the baseball game and not just watching the game and, and I've, this, I've just begun to wrestle with this thing about God being outside of time and absent of time and and all those things, and I'm looking out at these people that are like, and like right around the corner is the shade right in front of me, but around to the side is like bright sun beating down on these people, and you can just tell that half of them are just totally miserable and don't want to be there, and it's just hot. They're being affected by the heat. I am watching them unaffected by the heat. And that's the same principle is that God is watching us. We're outside. We're, we're outside being affected by time. God is inside completely unaffected by time. And we'll hear a few quotes about that in a bit. But it's important for us in the midst of this as we talk through and think through what it means to, be, to suffer and what it means that, that suffering is a tool in the hands of God to understand that God is completely unaffected and absent of time. Just like I was completely and unaffected and absent of the heat. The theme of the book is being shaped by Jesus in suffering. So we've seen who he wrote it to, when he wrote it, and what was going on in their lives and what was about to go on in their lives. But here's the theme of the book, being shaped by Jesus in suffering. Here's a promise 
Everyone in this room will suffer in some way. But if we understand 1 Peter and we understand who God is, we know that that suffering has a purpose and is a tool in the hands of a beautiful God. So let's, uh, let's get to the text. 1 Peter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Remember, those are all regions kind of right next to each other. In verse 2, this is where we're going to spend the rest of our time this morning. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for the sprinkling with his with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. There it is. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Uh, there are four phrases that I want to wrestle with and deal with uh, this morning. First, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Like I talked about, he is completely absent of time. And, and this is Make it a little bit scared. We've, we've seen the word elect and chosen by God. And, you know, some people who know what I'm getting at might be, get a little bit squirmy in their chair when we start talking about the fact that we are elect and we are chosen by God. And we could do Greek studies and find out that those words actually mean that we are elect and chosen by God. Um, they're appropriately translated. But there's, there's a... I don't want to spend our time there because we can get into some theological debate. I would love to talk to you about it if, if you want to talk to you about it, but not here in this context. Uh, feel free to email me, talk to me, call me, whatever. But here is, here's what I really want to talk about. According, we are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Think about this understanding of trying to impose words having to do with time, which is foreknowledge that has to do with time, upon God. I want to give you two quotes here. First, from Tozer. Time began in him and will end in him. To it he pays no tribute, and from it he suffers no change. This is God, unaffected by anything surrounding. He started time, he will end time, and it, he owes time nothing, and time can change him in no way. And that's a beautiful idea as a concept, but it's even more beautiful when we understand that Peter's about to start talking about what it means to suffer and why God allows suffering and how God uses suffering to shape us to be more like Jesus and think about what Jesus walked through in the midst of, of his great suffering and all of those things. When we put this idea that God is absence of time in the midst of this idea of suffering it has to bring hope and a desire to persevere in the midst of suffering because God is looking at this from afar, knowing that he can control all of this and take away and give to us whatever he wants. But ultimately, God is using this to shape us to be more like Jesus. And now put yourself in the place of somebody sitting in Galatia reading this who in six months will be impaled and on fire. My God, you are absent of time. You knew this was going to happen. I will be at your throne in moments. Can we have that sort of 
perspective. And this is the beauty of what's happening here and what we have to connect with. This isn't just something for you to, to get past twisting your ankle. This is the beauty of God spoken to our hearts to shape us to be more like Jesus who endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. John Wesley says this, Strictly speaking, there is no foreknowledge, no more than after knowledge with God. All things are known to him as present from eternity to eternity. Peter writes this epistle to a group of people who are about to be burned alive on a stake. God knew all of it in an instant. He knew everything that would ever happen to you in an instant. From all eternity past to all eternity future, God knows. And will provide you with what you need to endure. Enter the epistle of 1 Peter. Second notion, the second statement that he makes here. By the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Let's read this whole thing in. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit. Okay, so God is absent of time, and he's using time and events to happen in our lives to sanctify us. And this word sanctify is the purification and consecration of the heart and life. That's what it means to be sanctified. And that's the role of the Holy Spirit, who is fully God. God, in the form of the Spirit, is affecting you as you walk through your circumstances to sanctify you, to purify you. When you heat up a metal, the imperfections in that metal rise to the top. And there's a metal worker that scrapes that stuff off called dross, and he scrapes it off. And that's what's happening, and he'll talk about it here. Dave's going to get to talk about being purified by a trial next week. And what's happening is we get burned in suffering and it's uncomfortable but it is purifying us so that we might experience grace and peace and joy in a more pure way so in the middle of this difficulty there is a beautiful knowledge that what is to come is a purified hope and a, a, a knowledge of what is to come that in one day we will no longer be exiles we will be in the throne at the throne of heaven with God forever. And that is what is to come, and we experience God in a more pure way. And that was, as I read that, that prayer that I, I wrote in there this morning, that's what has affected me in these moments. God has used a slight bit of, of anxiousness to bring about his peace in my heart because I know of what is to come. And this peace can be ours. The third thing, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. What does it mean to obey Jesus? First, to desire to please God in word, deed, and thought. To obey him. So Peter is writing this to this group of people and subsequently us so that we might be able to obey Jesus in word and deed and thought. More than that, to be sprinkled with blood. 
And what, this is, this is a, a phrase that, that needs a little bit of explanation because we don't have the Hebrew tradition of sprinkling of blood to cleanse. All right? So I will get, bring you a, a bit of explanation. So when Peter writes, to be, I, I write this to you so that you will be sprinkled with blood, he's communicating this, that you'll be fully able and qualified to come before God in any and all circumstance. That's what happened in the ancient Hebrew world, the Old Testament text. When something was sprinkled with blood, it then had the opportunity and ability to go before God in any and all circumstances. So this is Peter saying this to us, knowing what's coming, the suffering that is to come. Uh, I want to read you a rather lengthy quote from uh, Tozer's Pursuit of God talking about this idea of the presence of God and sprinkling with blood. The interior journey of the soul from the wilds of sin into the enjoyed presence of God is beautifully illustrated in the Old Testament tabernacle. So Tozer's about to tell you about the Old Testament tabernacle. The returning sinner first entered the outer court where he offered a blood sacrifice on the brazen altar and washed himself in the laver that stood near it. All right? Comes in, sprinkles blood, and washes himself with water that's there. Then, through a veil, he passed into the holy place where no natural light could come, but the golden candlestick which Jesus spoke, of which Jesus spoke the light of the world through its soft glow over all. So he's in his dark room where there's nothing but the only light that's there is a candle burning. All right? Picture this image. There also was the bread, which was to tell of Jesus, the bread of life that was to come. And there was the altar of incense, a figure of unceasing prayer. Though the worshiper had enjoyed much, still he had not yet entered the presence of God. Another veil separated from the holy of holies, where above the mercy seat dwelt the very presence of of God himself, an awful and glorious manifestation. While the tabernacle stood, only the high priest could enter there. Only one guy in all of Jerusalem, in all of Judaism, all the Hebrew nation, millions of people, only one guy could enter the Holy of Holies. And there he could only enter but once a year with blood which he offered for his sins and the sins of people sprinkling of blood. It was this last veil which was rent when our Lord gave up his ghost on Calvary, rent, torn. That last veil was physically torn when God died, when Christ died on the cross. And the sacred writer explains that the rending, the tearing of this veil opened the way for every worshiper in the world to come by the new and living way straight into the divine presence. Let me read that again because this is Vitally important for us in the midst of suffering. Understand this. When Peter says to us, through the sprinkling of blood, this is what's coming. The last veil which was torn when our Lord gave up his ghost on Calvary. And the sacred writer explains that the tearing of this veil opened the way for every worshiper in the world to come by the new and living way straight into the divine presence. 
Everything in the New Testament accords with this Old Testament picture. Ransomed men need no longer pause in fear to enter the Holy of Holies. God wills that we should push into his presence and live our whole lives there. This is to be known to us in conscious experience. It is more than a doctrine to be held. It is a life to be enjoyed every moment of every day. By the way, that book is on our, is on our website in a PDF form. Uh, you should all read it all the time. But the picture here, when he says sprinkling of blood, it's we have no excuses not to press into the presence of a holy God. It's paid for by the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ onto our hearts and onto our lives. Period. It's over. And now we need no longer experience the anxiety that I experienced when I walked in the front door. I can live and press into a life lived in the presence of a holy and perfect God, even in the midst of suffering, even in the midst of what is to come in the lives of these people. Don't miss that. These people are about to die a gruesome execution. And God is saying, press into my presence. I've already afforded it to you. Even when you're there dying that death, press into my presence. Joy and peace are yours. Man, it's just... Mm. The last thing, the prayer... This is the culmination of Scripture. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Write that on something and put it in a conspicuous place and say it to yourself all the time. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. May grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. And And don't mistake, don't mess up, understand what Peter is speaking to you, what grace and peace are. Grace, the Greek word is charis, that which affords joy, pleasure, delight, sweetness, charm, loveliness. That's what grace is. That which affords joy, pleasure, delight, Sweetness, charm, loveliness. May that be yours in the midst of suffering. Impaled and on fire. Lovely. Joy. Sweet. If we could get our freaking minds off of where we are in this earth, in this planet, in these circumstances, and to the joy that will be ours, we might be able to live in this sort of grace and might be able to say when difficulty strikes, God, thank you for that grace, that gift. Peace. What is peace? Looks like a word Irene, but it's Irene. Irene means the tranquil state of of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so, fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot. 
the tranquil state of a soul assured of its salvation through Christ. And so, fearing nothing from God and content with its earthly lot, there is nothing that Nero can do to take away from these people. There is nothing that Satan can do to take away from these people. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Think about your and I's ability to, to give something, to give a gift, to give a, a full gift. And then think about God's ability. Everything at his disposal, all power, all authority, all everything at his disposal. He wants to pour grace and peace into your heart and into your life. But instead, we go farting around with this nonsense life, worried about here and there and what's happening tomorrow and blah. Focus on Christ and what is to come, and peace is yours. Don't miss the beauty. It's a prayer, and it's the purpose of the apostles' writing. Don't. Don't allow this moment to be weird or awkward, but if we love each other and we want greatness for each other, this is a prayer for us. Look around. This is what I'm talking. Don't be awkward. Look around. Pray for the grace and peace in abundance for that person. Look around. Too many of you are looking at me. Don't let it be awkward. This is too important to live life in community, to pray these prayers for each other. It's too vital because suffering is coming and suffering is present. It's too vital for us. To allow it to be weird, to look at somebody you barely know and say, I want to pray grace over you. I want to pray peace over you. This is what we're here for. This is why we, we wake up and come to this building to be engaged with life with each other. Because suffering is here and suffering is coming and God wants to pour grace and peace to you. And one of the tools that he gives you is each other to remind you of the grace and peace that's coming because left to yourself, you're going to wallow in your suffering. And your <laughs> but God wants to pour grace and peace into you. Pray that prayer for yourself. Pray for each other. It's vital. And I, I, I pray that we would have this notion in our minds every moment of every day, and especially as we're studying this thing, First Peter. Let's pray, and I'm going to go wipe the sweat off my forehead. God, I thank you for today. I thank you for this great and beautiful message that you've preached to my heart, God. That you are high and above us, Father, and suffering is a hard tool to use, Father, but it is a tool in your hands and you bring it to shape us, Father. Lord, may grace and peace be ours. 
Lord, may you impart your grace and your peace to us. Even if we can't intellectually connect with with what it means, what grace really means, and what peace really means, may we practically connect with what it means because of how you change our hearts and our lives, God. And Lord, I thank you for the peace that you brought to my heart in that chair a couple hours ago. God, I pray for that peace for these people, Father. Overwhelm us in such a way that we are so completely distracted by the beauty of who you are and the beauty of what is to come that we forget about this life and the difficulty that it presents us, Father. God, burn into our brains a desire to pray this peace over our lives and over those we interact lives. God, we're about to sing a song, and there's a line there that makes my heart sore. I don't have time to maintain these regrets when I think about the way you love me. God, connect our hearts there. Allow us to soar now as we worship you.